welcome back to the Country Intelligence Report. On the podcast, we explore big ideas, discuss the latest headlines from the worlds of international affairs and consulting. We're excited to have you join us on this incredible journey as we delve into a myriad of fascinating topics and provide impactful insights. Stay tuned as we take you around the globe. Hello, and welcome to part two of our episode, The Russo-Ukrainian War, a WPS Perspective. We join Dr. Susie Yoshihara as she discusses the lasting impact and trauma of forced migration on a countrywide scale. Thank you so much for that. Uh, pardon me, uh, Dr. Hoffman. Um, I, I share your sentiment that the, the trauma from these uh, events will be definitely felt for, for some time to come, and, and we won't really know the full extent for, for some time as well. And um, I, I do believe that it's important that we... We, we sort of face the sobering reality of what's going on. Um, it can be very easy to talk about these these topics in the abstract, but um, providing those real concrete examples of exactly the type of violence that's being uh, perpetrated on the ground uh, really helps put things into perspective for us. Um, but uh, apologies, Dr. Yoshihara, I, I interrupted you. Um, you know, I, I no, not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. I, uh, I just was uh, just stunned by some of these numbers. Six and a half million refugees imagine leaving your home leaving your husband or sons behind it's just stunning when you think about it eight million internally displaced people um and you know really credit to those countries and those families in europe and elsewhere that are taking in those families because it is a collective trauma um you know i was fortunate to go to the harvard program in refugee trauma And our organization, American Council on Women, Peace and Security, takes a trauma-informed approach to all of our work. Uh, We have three people certified so far in refugee trauma. And what we know now, the brain science that just in the last 10 years, we know the effects um, on adults and children is very different. The effects of trauma on children actually changes the trajectory of children uh, and their mental health uh, for the rest of their lives. And so addressing this, it's, a, it's an invisible wound, they call it. And uh, these are certainly uh, not, you're not going to be able to see them in pictures on Twitter or on the nightly news, but they're every bit as real. And again, they will affect that prevention piece. Imagine if you think that there was animosity between these two countries beforehand. Imagine how hard it will be able to heal that and who is going to be the one to heal those families. How are we going to prevent future war? Um, A lot of times it will be the parents, it will be the mothers who will have to teach their children peace after these atrocities. You know, there were some excellent studies done on trauma that's passed on, uh, literally passed on to children. Uh, in uh, a couple of them were done, one in Africa, but one done in Holocaust survivors. And it was shown that the trauma was passed on not just to children, but to the generation after that. And recognizing that, I think we're seeing the fallout even in our own country as we talk about healing the wounds of things like slavery and other things. These things don't go away just because we don't... um, we didn't participate. There are things that last and last and last. And so I'm just thinking of Ukraine and what happens after the war, because um, prevention of war um, is is so important. Now, this war will end. 
uh, either the Ukrainians will sue for peace, they will be forced to sue for peace, but there will be a negotiation at some point, um, no matter how the war turns out. And will the will these types of issues, that the issues that families, that women in particular bring to the table, thinking about children and health and education and well-being, rebuilding, forgiveness, um, how uh, how will we get those to the table? And really, I think the whole world is watching. Uh, the, the military is fighting now, but hopefully in the wings, the politicians are uh, realizing that that negotiations, not just to sue for peace, but the negotiations for the peace um, and within Ukraine, uh, amnesty, for example, we know that in amnesty deals, often the the violence that's been perpetrated on a community goes missing. And these communities are asked to uh, welcome with open arms soldiers um, or people who might have uh, visited atrocities with no respect for what it's done to the community. And that's why it's so important to get the community to the table to make sure that that peace deal is something that recognizes all of society. And we know that that, in, and that includes these women who've now left the country and who are gonna have to come back somehow uh, and be part of that. Um, you know, there are uh, other ways of, of reconciling and that's international law. We look at the three branches of international law, human rights law. I think people are familiar with human rights and the treaties um, that have been signed. Well, we look at the laws of armed conflict that are on display right now. And those are really based in the just war principles. Uh, Russia is violating them at every single turn. Uh, the prohibition of attacking civilians, for example, proportionality, um, uh, the last resort principle that, that, that hot war violent conflict can't be waged until every other peaceful means has been exhausted. That certainly didn't happen. Um, but then there's also this uh, international criminal law, that third category of law. And we saw this after the Second World War with the Nuremberg trials, uh, where there was an effort to really make sure that those individuals, as Dr. Hoffman talked about, th these are this a war affects individuals, not just groups of people, and that carefully crafted cases have to be brought because we are, in, after all, uh, seeking the rule of law. We cannot uh, have retaliation. We must instead uh, call to account. And that can be a laborious and painstaking process. Um, but that, too, is part of trying to build a more peaceful world, right? So, um, unfortunately, we, we don't see a lot of cases being successfully brought in the cases of, of things like violence, atrocities, and violence against women in particular. Um, and I'm hopeful that that will change. You know, recently we've seen a real upsurge in the number of women who are involved in prosecutions who are trained as lawyers, especially in places like Africa, places like maritime law, places um, in human rights and criminal law as well. It's been some time that we've seen women really at the forefront of this. So um, I'm hopeful that that kind of participation will start to transform um, how we see these, you know, the, the legacy from 1993 forward that really started to take seriously these crimes in law will be will lead to prosecutions. Uh, and that will provide some sense of mitigation for violence going forward and will be a form of uh, prevention of violence going forward. Wow, it's it's just so devastating to think about the lasting impact of these traumas for generations. Yeah. And if you think about how long WPS has been in place for the last 20 years and still how much further we have to go, it's incredible. Mm. 
Yeah, and I'd, I'd like to just chime in really quickly and um, talk about uh, a little bit of the other side of, of this conflict, this war, and think a little bit about um, Russian women um, and Russian women's participation, also their role in uh, their potential role in prevention. Um, we don't see a lot of women participating on the Russian side Um and uh, if we think about Russia and women, peace and security, uh, Russia has no uh, action plan in place there. There's no implementation of WPS. And I think that can tell us a lot. Um, but it's important to uh, to recognize where uh, where um, Russian women have been uh, trying to prevent this uh, this war and also to uh protect uh, women. Uh, one stark example that comes up for me is I attended a, a webinar uh, by the Wilson Center, and uh, it was really moving um, Russian women who are living outside of Russia. Uh, they were able to um, have a webinar with uh, Ukrainian women and also Belarusian women, um, and they came together uh, for about two hours and really talked about their efforts um, unified and working together to uh, to stop it, this war or to protect those who are being affected. Um, so there's there's that that other that other side as well, and um, there's certainly the other side of. Um, that women, of course, can be perpetrators too. Uh, we're not seeing that very stark in Ukraine at the moment because uh, women aren't really present there. Um, but uh, but what we're seeing, um, uh, but it's it's just an important piece to to note when we talk about women, peace, and security. Uh, one more final thing is um, something interesting about uh, Russian mothers. Um, there was uh, some uh, movement in the beginning uh, after the full-scale invasion. Uh, well, one thing was that women were participating in a lot of the protests that were happening across Russia. Um, but also Russian mothers have played a really important part in uh, stopping or, or attempting to stop conflict in the past. Um, one example is uh, an NGO uh, that was set up in uh, 1989. Uh, they were set up to ex try to expose human rights violations uh, that were happening in what was then the Soviet military. Um, and they're still in existence to, to today, as far as we know. Um, and they were in the beginning um, trying to uh, contact women um, and, and mothers were contacting them to try to get information about where their sons were, as many of uh, their their Russian sons had been uh, sent to the front lines and there was no information being provided back to their families. Um, I don't know what they're doing, if they're able to continue their work um, as they are in Russia, and I don't have that information, but I think it's important to to just show that there are some, some uh, in Russia who want this war to end. They don't want this war at all, and they have been trying in their way to uh, to prevent it, if possible. One thing I'd like to ask is to kind of delve into it a little bit more is how, what else women can do to prevent something like this? You know, um, I think that it's amazing to me as I drive around my own neighborhood and see Ukrainian flags in the gardens that we're Tending in the springtime, um, flying the Ukrainian flag below the U.S. flag on these flagpoles that um, so many of us, especially here in the Washington, D.C. area, so many veterans with big, tall flagpoles, so proud. And uh, you see real solidarity, you know, the pins on the lapels of men and women uh, wearing the scarves of Ukraine. It's really extraordinary. 
that um, there seems to be a solidarity uh, in the world. And, and politically, we see that through sanctions and security cooperations. We see it in just a myriad ways in the population. It makes me wonder, uh, will we see Ty- Taiwanese flags in the gardens in the springtime uh, if China in Taiwan. I really think it's important to see this war that might have seemed unthinkable um, to some, who, uh, but very thinkable to those who you know, have been paying attention to this part of the world. Uh, and I think the war with China seems unthinkable, but I think people are taking a second look now. You know, um, in security cooperation, we prioritize those nations which are closest to China and to Russia. You know, we're trying to strengthen, to bolster, to make sure that they are strong, they have the rule of law, and they can protect their borders. And in the rest of the world, we're always trying to find regional leaders that we can make sure um, can lead regions and uh, make countries so strong they're impervious to being taken over as hotbeds for training terrorists and violent criminals and uh, transnational crime, etc., Uh, We also need to think of that in terms of women and girls and the broader community. Uh, We need to be building those states which do protect rights, uh, recognize the individual liberty and humanity of each and every person. You know, human rights and values have always been part of American foreign policy. I think that's why we're seeing flags, Ukrainian flags pop up. Uh, I think Americans innately know how precious what we have, uh, the rule of law, um, the protections of our freedoms and a strong defense, uh, holding people accountable all the way up to the president of the United States um, and, and every last member of Congress. This is uh, this is precious, but we also see it's fragile and uh, it is thinkable. I know that the Chinese are watching very carefully what's happening. Um, and we also know that that what happened last year with the pullout from Afghanistan uh, has been credited as provoking this um, invasion. So we know that everything is connected. And I just encourage listeners as we're thinking about everything in the geopolitical and military and political terms to also think about these uh, more societal terms because really war is about the whole of society. And that's what WPS is fundamentally about, recognizing that and that we need And I'm very glad to see all Americans who are now very aware, um, also very keen on ending this war uh, in a just and lasting way. Um, But we also need to now be very, pay a lot of attention to what's next. And I think, and I hope that we're also turning our eyes to China and making sure we're holding our leaders accountable to making sure that they're also protecting us because war won't be fought far away. That too will have consequences that will hit us here at home uh, and certainly uh, hit all of the people in the region in Asia as well. So I guess I would just uh, encourage all of us to think about that bigger picture as we're um, also thinking about what happens next. You know, there was a wonderful speech by um, one of the former presidents in in the Baltic states who came to the United States and spoke here. uh, And she said, uh, uh, really, the military is buying us politicians time. And when the war is over and peace is being sought, will we trade that um, will we trade that for heating oil and air conditioning? And what she meant by that is that uh, the Russians provide 
energy to Europe. And over the years, Europeans have been buying it without respect you know, for the um, consequences of that decision. And so she's saying, will we in Europe be willing to suffer? Will we, will we be willing to suffer to ensure that Russia's back in the box? And I guess we in the United States need to ask ourselves that about China as well. What are we willing to do for peace? Um, and so I think that the WPS gives us a great framework. Um, and I hope that, you know, the time that we've spent with you here today, we, we together can you know, think through some of the more nuanced and uh, efficacious ways that we can sue for peace in the future. Yes, I um, that that was uh, very eloquently put, and I, I agree wholeheartedly with your your sentiments on, um, you know, uh, I guess wondering if these same empathies will be extended to the uh, inevitable, um, hopefully not inevitable, but seemingly increasingly inevitable uh, conflict between China and Taiwan, and and um, you know just seeing that on the horizon. Uh, Again, I, I agree with you that uh, I'd say last year, this time, it, it would seem impossible or something that, you know, would, would be sort of um, a worst case scenario. So many things would have to fall into place. But as we see what's playing out in Ukraine and the, you know, the response and, and the, the, the sort of, uh, I guess, surprise that it, 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 it sprung on the world that uh, Russia would be willing to act in such a, um, and uh, uh, such a way that was completely, I guess, anathema to the international norms and and expectations of rational leadership. Um, now we have to ask these questions of China as well, and um, that one, uh, China in particular, has, I, I think probably more implications on America directly. Um, obviously, the Ukrainian war um, impacts us all as a global community, but um, it does have, uh, or it's, it's, it's proving to have more of a disproportionate impact on Europe. And I, I believe that will be the case for, for a China-Taiwanese China, war, um, that it would have a disproportionate impact on uh, the United States. So, um, you know, seeing that coming along the horizon is, is definitely sobering and, and uh, it's going to force us all here to ask some really hard questions of ourselves about their sacrifices we're going to uh, be willing to make um, oh. in that situation. But uh, but yeah, I guess I really just want to end it on one central question. Um, can our listeners or what can our listeners do to, to get involved in, in, in these actions and and, you know, get more informed or assist in some way? Um, just if you have any any tips or or insights uh, that our listeners can sort of take with them and and um, put into action, that would be helpful. Sure, I can I can try to give a little bit, and then maybe Susan can finish it up for me. Um, Definitely when we're looking at something like this, um, we can feel helpless. We can feel like we're unable to really do anything to assist. Um, but like we were emphasizing a lot during the conversation is um, this is about um, 
lots of people, but it's also about individuals. So even a simple thing like donating, it might be not that much money, um, but a few, a little bit, whatever you have, and um, you're going to make an impact in an individual. And that has huge effects more than um, what it might seem in the dollar amount that you're, you're sending. So donations are really, really crucial. Um, Staying engaged and educated, just having those conversations, these conversations with your friends, your family, um, it can feel like it, it's meaningless. It's simple. It's small. Um, but that's really how peace is, is, um, come comes and is also, um, sustained long-term people, um, talking about this. If, uh, our listeners want to learn more about women, peace and security in particular, this is a really big topic. Um, but a really good place to start is, um, the American council on women, peace and security, where I am currently a fellow. Um, and we have a great website with lots of resources. If you want to just check it out and, and get, um, up to speed on what WPS is, um, it's uh, WPScouncil.org. I, I would encourage you to go and, and begin your education on, you know, getting a little bit more informed about WPS and what it can do um, there. I'll turn it over to Susan now for her comments and suggestions, but I just wanted to quickly say thank you so much for having me. And this is a a really important conversation and I'm really grateful to have had it here on uh, the Country Intelligence Report. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, uh, Dr. Hoffman. I want to reiterate, if you can come to our website, wpscouncil.org, you can learn more about, for example, our, our series on Afghanistan, you know, we have an ongoing series on Afghanistan. And I think the fact that you're listening to this podcast means you are not forgetting. You have not forgotten about Ukraine, even though other things are going to start to take over in the, the news. Let us not forget. Uh, we're not forgetting about the women of Afghanistan that we worked with for 20 years, um, are still working with. Um, and let's not forget um, about those vulnerable places like Taiwan. We need to maintain our solidarity with them. We're starting a new series. Um, we are working in Uganda, in northern Uganda. We're building a school there where girls are often sold into early marriage and they have um, you know, the opportunity to go to school only if we can get these schools back up and running again to keep them um on track for a a life of human flourishing and promise where those girls can then take leadership roles and build their communities. So there there are other ways that that we can help uh, make a difference um, in the places where we're planted. And of course, it starts in our own home. You know, the P in the middle of WPS is the long pole in the tent. Uh, And we really believe that peace starts right inside ourselves. I mean, talking to people in a peaceful way, acknowledging that there are people who have lived through trauma right here in our own families and in our own communities and neighborhoods. Uh, and so one of the ways we can do that is just um, to try to you know, be an agent for peace and more peaceful discourse in our own families and our own lives. So it has been an honor to come on your show. I think country intelligence the podcast and it's a great uh, partnership that we have with american council and um, country intelligence and i really look forward to talking with you some more in the future well thank you so much dr hoffman and dr yoshihara it's been an incredible experience to have you both on today and i just want to thank you so much for your time and sharing all of your knowledge with us Thank you. It's been great to be here. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Country Intelligence Report. Please be sure to like and subscribe. For more in-depth analysis, please visit us on Twitter at Country Intel, Instagram, 
countryintel underscore report or visit our website at www.countryintel.com.